Good day from Manila. Welcome to the Katipunan Dialogue, a podcast by the Strategic Studies Program of the University of the Philippines Center for Integrative and Development Studies, where we discuss trends and views concerning Philippine foreign policy and the regional strategic environment. I'm your host, Jane Encinas Franco, Associate Professor from the Department of Political Science of the University of the Philippines. This week, we delve into the mechanism of regional crisis management. We ask our speakers to analyze the challenges and prospects of multilateral engagement to address the security issues facing the region. I'd like to start by introducing our guests. First off, we have Dr. Sarah Teo, a research fellow and coordinator of the Regional Security Architecture Program of the Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you, Jean. Um, it is my pleasure to be on the podcast and thank you for the invitation as well. Thank you. Also joining us today is retired Rear Admiral Romel Jude Ong of the Philippine Navy, currently a professor of praxis at the Ateneo School of Government. Welcome to the podcast, Romel. Good morning, Jean, and good morning to everybody listening. Hi, good morning, Romel. Thank you both for joining us. I'd like to start by asking Sarah, strategic competition between the U.S. and China and their interest continued to pose a challenge to to ASEAN centrality. While most East Asian states welcome U.S. engagement in the region, they do not want to be forced to choose sides. How do regional countries implement engagement, especially multilateralism, in the context of major power rivalries? Sarah? Well, thanks, Jean, for the question. Well, I think that conventionally, um, many East Asian states have relied on multilateralism as a way that will allow them the freedom to not choose sides uh, between the major powers, as you have pointed out. So when I refer to multilateralism here, I'm really referring to the kind of uh, broad and inclusive multilateralism that has typically been associated with ASEAN. So platforms like uh, the ARF, the East Asia Summit, and the ADMM Plus all reflect strategies to engage both major powers. So in the context of major power relations uh, or rivalry, I think the important thing to remember about such multilateral platforms is that there are two important things to remember. So one is that these platforms do help to facilitate dialogue and cooperation among the major powers. I mean, of course, China and the US have their own or they have other avenues of communication beyond the ASEAN-led mechanisms. But having that additional option there, I think, can be quite useful as well. The second important function of multilateralism in, in the context of major power rivalry is that such engagement uh, really serves, I think, as a useful tool to ensure that the smaller regional countries are not left out. Because logically, China and the US, you know, they wield disproportionate influence in decision-making. You know, they have a whole range of hard and soft power tools that they can, and, and as we have seen, that they have used. But the value of multilateralism is that it can soften the unilateralism of these major powers um, and help to establish a more equitable decision-making process, or at the very least, it can provide a platform for smaller countries to also have a voice. Um, 
And so alongside Sino-US competition today, you know, we see more exclusive, multi or mini lateral arrangements taking shape, right, to support either side of this rivalry. Uh, China has established the, the AIIB and the BRI, uh, the US and its allies and partners have their own Indo-Pacific strategy. You know, new frameworks such as the Quad have emerged. But I think, you know, at this stage, uh, most regional states still see the value of broad and inclusive multilateralism. And ideally, this kind of large-scale multilateralism should continue to coexist alongside the newer, uh, smaller, more exclusive groupings. But I think it really also depends on whether member states continue to see the utility in such platforms five or ten years down the road. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Sarah. Rumel, are the multilateral arrangements surrounding East Asia, such as the ADMM, the East Asian Summit, and the ASEAN Regional Forum, still fit for the purpose to meet the growing tensions in the region? Or does ASEAN's current structure still contribute to peaceful multilateral engagement? Uh, the construct of the ADMM and the ARF are the appropriate mechanisms, ideally, for dealing with the uh, say, the U.S.-China strategic competition here in Southeast Asia. But I emphasize the word ideally. Uh, mm -hmm. There's still much room for improvement. Uh, there's always that tension between uh, ASEAN and the ASEAN member state interest. And more often than not, it, it's the individual member state interest and engagement with the uh, major powers that uh, overrides the engage the, the the dynamics within the region. So what I'm trying to say is uh, we do have those mechanisms. We have ADMM, we have ARF, mm -hmm. and the ADMM plus and the ARF plus, which actually uh, covers the uh, other powers, middle powers and uh, the great powers. But uh, there's still much room uh, needed for those mechanisms to be able to be a relevant player. Uh, uh, in the region, and uh, that is that is the aspiration I think of most, uh, at least on my side, on my on from from my personal view is that uh, we need to do more. ASEAN needs to do more to become uh, relevant and maybe be able to uh, actually have a, a dent on the uh, dynamics between the two powers, uh, U.S. and uh, China. Otherwise, we will just become an innocent bystander. Uh, uh, trying to uh, ward off the competition without making any sense. Yeah, okay. indeed, indeed. Um, the cooperative mechanisms built by ASEAN, such as the region-wide ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting or the ADMM Plus, and the more localized trilateral cooperation agreement between Malaysia, Philippines, and Indonesia are non-traditional security initiatives that are yet to have a positive spillover effect on more traditional security issues. How long can traditional security issues be put aside in the dialogue? I mean, Romel and uh, Sarah, you may both respond to this question or any one of you. Um, I, ca I can take this first if, if yeah, Romel is. Uh -uh. Okay. Well, I think, um, you know, as, as we see in recent times, traditional security dynamics are already affecting ASEAN. So mm -hmm. I would say that you know, if Sino-US rivalry continues to worsen and it looks like it will, ASEAN will need to address traditional security at some point, right? So this is, as what Romel said earlier, this is important as part of maintaining its relevance in the region. 
Um, and we are starting to see now that the newer platforms, you know, like the Quad and the FOIP have risen to fulfill this gap precisely mm-hmm. left by ASEAN in addressing traditional security challenges. And in the long term, um, I think the risk is to, the risk to ASEAN is that given limited resources and then constraints, countries may eventually find um, their interests better served by these non-ASEAN arrangements rather than by the ASEAN-led mechanisms. And that is when I think the, their interest and commitment to ASEAN may drop off. Mm-hmm. Um, another risk I see is that I think deepening divisions in traditional security is likely to eventually affect uh, non-traditional security cooperation as well. Because ASEAN has always, I guess, prided itself on uh, enhancing cooperation in non-traditional security, like disaster relief, uh, humanitarian assistance, and so on. But I don't see how that such cooperation can continue to be sustainable if the major powers are, are preoccupied or, or if they are consumed by traditional uh, rivalries um, in, in the long term. Um, and I think the other side to the story, however, is that we also have to be careful of jumping the gun because there is also the risk that if ASEAN attempts to dive into traditional security and doesn't handle it well or handle it effectively, um, then it may actually backfire and affect its unity and, and consequently its standing and relevance in the region. So mm-hmm. I think it is a tough task um, and it's really about finding that right balance between when to push forward and when to take a step back. And I think to get there, we really require ASEAN's full range of, of diplomatic tools, right? Um, the informal diplomacy, uh, you know, the, the, the efforts and the will to assert uh, its normative influence and, and so on. Yeah, so I think that at some point, ASEAN do, will have to face um, traditional security challenges, but it will, be, uh, it will have to be carefully um, calibrated. Finding the right balance indeed. Um, Romel? Uh, well, uh, yes, I agree with Sarah, but let me just go back to the, your example on the trilateral cooperative arrangement, the Indomalfi. Uh, one of the key ingredients that, led, that made it work or made it took, it took off was the leadership provided by the Indone- Indonesians in, in making that work. Uh, and here, uh, a shift towards non-traditional to traditional uh, given the construct of ASEAN, you have 10, ten uh, member states. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to take the lead, and uh, wh- whether it is Indonesia or somebody else, I think somebody has to take the initiative first uh, towards uh, towards a transition or maybe an expansion of coverage from the non-traditional to the traditional security concerns. And uh, without that leadership or without that uh, somebody taking that initiative among the member states, uh, I think... The, my, my concern is that uh, ASEAN will just gravitate towards uh, car- what it is currently doing uh, and uh, not move on. And again, we go back to the word relevance. Uh, uh, ASEAN needs mm-hmm. to say relevant. Otherwise, uh, and I, we see manifestation of this already with the way uh, Biden has approached his multilateral or his uh, multilateral or his engagements. Uh, yes, basically ignored ASEAN. Uh, Mm-hmm. Right now, he has been talking with the EU, NATO countries, Japan, and the uh, Australia. But uh, I think the 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 uh, messaging that they're uh, they're trying to say is that uh, ASEAN is not relevant, and maybe we we should take that signal from that signal. We should take a hint 
on uh, where we should uh, where we should be uh, moving towards. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, what about the code of conduct negotiations between ASEAN member states and China? Um, it continues to have many obstacles. In in your opinion, what is the best likely outcome of these negotiations? Or on the other hand, are there any dangerous outcomes of these negotiations, success or failure? Sarah? Um, well, I think for the code of conduct, I think the best outcome in my view would really be that um, it ends up with a document that is legally binding based on international law and UNCLOS and, mm -hmm. and provides uh, monitoring or arbitration mechanisms but I think the likely outcome, however, would probably be that uh, the COC, when it is concluded, is a political statement largely, uh, non-binding, without much legal force or enforcement capabilities. So probably, I think, quite similar to what we already see in the Declaration of Conduct uh, that was signed in 2002, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so if the final COC is a largely political statement that I think whether it is eventually produced or not uh, is really unlikely to significantly uh, make a difference to South China Sea dynamics. I mean, it will, of course, be regarded rightly as a diplomatic achievement for ASEAN, um, but I don't think it will satisfy critics who regard ASEAN as a talk shop, especially, I think, if it becomes clear that the COC doesn't substantively change the facts on the ground. Um, and I'll just add one more thing to this question, which is that I think it is important also to keep in mind that the code of conduct is, is not really the, the be all and end all of the issue because there are other related mechanisms as well, such as queues um, and, and the various uh, expert working groups in the ADMM plus. Um, so all these, I think, also contribute uh, indirectly or directly uh, to keeping the South China Sea peaceful. So I think that's something that, you know, uh, should be kept in mind moving forward also. Yes, yes. Uh, Romel, your thoughts on Asia? I'm rather pessimistic about the COC negotiation because it started off on the wrong foot. Mm -hmm. uh, number one is uh, you're not talking here of an ASEAN-China negotiation. It's actually 11 states uh, negotiating the COC. Each, each state has its own draft of the COC. Mm -hmm. The second, the, the second uh, point would be there are some ASEAN member states that are not actually con concerned or has no interest in the South China Sea uh, security concerns. And I talk of, uh, let's say, Cambodia, Laos, and maybe even Thailand. Uh, they have no direct interest uh, uh, in uh, how this negotiation will uh, come to an end. So I think the best case scenario, and also given the fact that China has used the COC negotiation to insinuate some of its... Uh, non-COC interest, example, uh, uh, pre preventing third-party countries, which is actually referring to the United States, from conducting ex exercises in the South China Sea without its permission, uh, mm -hmm. trying to, uh, to insinuate in the document uh, that the uh, sort of a bi uh, multilateral naval exercise uh, to be headed by, uh, between China and the rest of the ASEAN states. Those have nothing to do with the COC uh, in the first place. So, uh, mm -hmm. because of, of, of this, I, I don't think the best case scenario for me is for the COC to, uh, to fail. <laughs> so, to say that. <laughs> and maybe end up what uh, Sarah yeah. said, just 
just come up with a political statement that everybody's happy and everybody has uh, as, as, as aspirations for a, a, a stable and re- uh, peaceful region. Uh, that would be the best uh, for it. But for it to have some detailed requirements or detailed action specified for each of the member states, I think that would actually be contrary to both the ASEAN interest and the, the individual interest of the ASEAN member states. Thank you. But uh, what about um, other regional groupings? Um, is ASEAN centrality under threat um, by other groupings, such as, for instance, the quadrilateral security dialogue or the quad? How does the formation of the quad affect ASEAN centrality? Uh, I'll answer first. Yeah, it's please. not so much ASEAN central- centrality, but it's like the analogy is you are in a common neighborhood and you want to have a say on what goes on in your neighborhood. And uh, if ASEAN centrality or ASEAN as a, as a group uh, does not step up, then uh, it will be the U.S. and China who are, uh, well, China is part of the neighborhood, U.S. Mm-hmm. is not. But the point is, those two will be dictating the terms of how what goes on in your neighborhood. Uh, so if uh, ASEAN doesn't step up and, uh, state it, uh, and voice out its opinion or voice out its interests, then we are basically being nudged out of the conversation. And maybe at the end of the day, uh, the, two strate- the two competitors will be the one dictating what happens in the South China Sea in particular and in, South- in Southeast Asia in general. And ASEAN no longer uh, has a control of its own destiny. I think that's the worst case uh, outcome that we can have uh, uh, in this context. Thank you. Yeah. Sarah, your thoughts? Well, I absolutely agree with Romel. I think that is really the, the worst case scenario for ASEAN. And, and, and if that comes to pass, I guess ASEAN will gradually uh, and slowly slide into irrelevance. Um, and I also think that, I mean, we can approach the, the question of ASEAN centrality from a few dimensions because when I hear of ASEAN centrality, it basically reminds me of three, three dimensions of centrality. So first is geographic, basically this idea that ASEAN is geographically in the center of, of broader Asia or Indo-Pacific region. So this point is, is not really disputed. I think most regional countries accept that. Um, the second dimension to this centrality would be institutional centrality in the sense that ASEAN has always been regarded as the main convening power um, and even agenda-setting power of, of the multilateral architecture. And if we talk about the Quad, I do think that it seems, or at least early signs indicate that it is very likely to affect this aspect of ASEAN centrality. Because as we know, the Quad started out, or rather the Quad 2.0 um, started out meeting on the sidelines of you know, ASEAN forums right in 2017. And then gradually, and also, I guess, as a result of the COVID pandemic, which put a stop to all in-person meetings, um, the Quad took to meeting on their own, uh, online at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but then last year, there was a foreign minister's meeting in Tokyo, um, conducted right in the middle of, of, at the height of the pandemic, right? When, when all the other ASEAN meetings were put on hold, in-person meetings were put on hold. Um, and then this year, earlier this year, there was a Quad virtuous virtual leader summit uh, that took place among the four countries. So we can see how the Quad has slowly progressed uh, from, from a senior officials meeting on the sidelines of ASEAN to a foreign minister's meeting standalone and then to the latest virtual summit. There was also, or there has also been a series of Quad Plus meetings, uh, which has so far focused on pandemic management. And I think the, the frequency of these meetings have actually lessened. 
Um, but I think what's important here is looking at how the court will continue to construct relations with its external partners uh, going forward. But what all these developments indicate to me is that you know, the court is really seeking to become a regular feature of diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific, like the White House said. And the good news for ASEAN is that the four quad countries have started to acknowledge ASEAN centrality uh, and ASEAN's role in their various statements. Uh, what this commitment means to ASEAN, I think in concrete terms, is still a bit of a question mark. Um, and we will only know, I think, the full extent of how how much the Quad affects ASEAN institutional centrality over time, right? As we move into a post-pandemic post world and as um, in-person meetings resume. Um, the third dimension to ASEAN centrality, I think, is in strategic terms. So this is basically about whether ASEAN uh, can address the big security or strategic questions uh, in the region, like the South China Sea or even the Korean Peninsula, right? Because I think the revival of the Quad actually indicates that ASEAN has not been able to fulfill this strategic dimension of its centrality, um, which is why that, that there was a need to kind of, for the four countries to come together again. Um, so in terms of whether the Quad has affected ASEAN's strategic centrality, I wouldn't say so much that it has, but rather that, you know, it is more that ASEAN's lack of strategic centrality has actually resulted in the resumption of the Quad. So I think that's how I see the links between ASEAN uh, is centrality and, and the emergence of the Quad. In the last uh, few minutes, we've talked about ASEAN and its centrality and other uh, regional groupings. What do you think are the future directions and areas for the defense cooperation in the region? My, my, I'm currently conducting a study with the UPCIDS and it's on minilaterals. And... Uh, is actually taking off from uh, the TCA, the Trilateral Cooperative Arrangement, which is, as we have discussed earlier, uh, focused on non-traditional security concerns. So using that model, and of, co of course, another model would be the Malacca Street Patrol. Uh, the question, this, my, my, the study I'm conducting is, can, can this be more appropriate models for a, a minilateral approach towards addressing uh, security concerns in the South China Sea? So. Uh, with that in mind, uh, is it possible to have uh, to for that to transition to a defense from a minilateral to a, a, a minilateral defense cooperation arrangement between relevant countries? And I'm looking at, uh, of course, the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Brunei, and Singapore. Those who have convergence of interest in in the uh, South China, what happen, whatever happens in the South China Sea. But of course. Uh, there are a lot of impediments towards that cooperation. And uh, one of those is the fact that uh, some of the countries that I mentioned have actually have some uh, border issues with its neighbor, neighboring country, and that needs to be resolved as well. And of course, uh, we have to factor in this, uh, how do we manage the perception of such cooperation so that it will not trigger an adverse reaction from, let's say, China. Uh, so those are concerns. But I would presume that... Uh, the U.S. would welcome such uh, cooperation. Again, uh, from concept to actually making it work uh, is, uh, is already, uh, I think, uh, will be a lot of hard work to do. But it's something that needs to be studied uh, among the uh, ASEAN militaries, particularly the countries I mentioned. Uh, uh, be uh, because you need to have that kind of mechanism in support of ADMM or the ARF. Uh, basically, uh, you're lo looking at mechanisms that have no enforcement tools. So ARF 
and EDMM will be relegated to, uh, for want of a better word, talking shops, if there's uh, no mechanism below it that would actually enforce its, uh, its uh, discussions or its uh, what, whatever the uh, arrangement they've agreed upon. Thank you. Yes, Sarah? Thanks, Jean. Uh, I think the idea of unilateralism is, is something that I, I think is, uh, I, I'm interested in as well. And also, I do see a trend that we are, uh, there are more and more unilateral mechanisms or arrangements uh, emerging in the region. So I think a related issue to that would be whether going forward in defense cooperation, uh, regional countries will start preferring you know, unilateral or even bilateral cooperation over the larger scale multilateralism of the ADMM+. Um, you know, especially in the context of Sino-US rivalry. And if, the, if these countries feel that they get better returns out of the smaller groupings rather than the big 18-member uh, exercises. So I think that would be one issue to watch. Um, I think another issue to watch in, in defense cooperation for the region uh, would be how uh, platforms like the ADMM and ADMM Plus are going to engage with other countries like the UK, Germany or France uh, because with the rise of the Indo-Pacific, we, we have seen more interest in the region from these extra-regional countries, and several of them have also expressed interest in joining regional institutions like the, uh, like the East Asia Summit and the ADMM+. So whether they do eventually join it and how that will change, I think, the, the dynamics or, or the form of these institutions would be another interesting issue to, to watch. Um, and I guess my, my, my final thought about how future direction of for defense cooperation might proceed would be that, you know, looking at the most recent ADMM and ADMM Plus meeting that just took place, I think, I believe a couple of weeks ago, um, it seems that the region is starting to enhance cooperation in areas like cybersecurity uh, and, and chemical, biological, and radiological threats. So I think these are emerging areas that um, Southeast Asia uh, collectively does not really have um, the capacity or capability to, to address yet. Um, but it is a good time to, to look at these threats and look at how ASEAN and Southeast Asia can strengthen their capabilities um, to respond to these challenges. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you for your insightful um, analysis uh, about the challenges and prospects of multilateral engagements to address the security issues facing the ASEAN region. Indeed, um, uh, we have a lot to think about uh, after this podcast, and we'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Sarah Teo and Rear Admiral Romel Ong for joining us today. Many thanks as well to our co-sponsor, Conrad Adenauer Stiftung Philippines. Join us again next week as we discuss the realignment of forces in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's Katipunan Dialogue. This has been the Katipunan Dialogue Podcast. Hosted by Herman Joseph Kraft. Program written by the UPCIDS Strategic Studies Program. Powered by Mothership Recording Studios. No part of this podcast shall be reproduced without the written consent from the UPCIDS Strategic Studies Program. All rights reserved 2021.